Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the prophets, and here the guys will finish up their discussion on Daniel chapter 11. This week, we are in Monroe, Louisiana at the CREC Council, and it's been a real encouragement to meet many pastors in the CREC and hear of the great work that's going on in CREC churches across the world. And as always, we do invite you to take a look at those links in our show notes. We have a few events coming up, one in Texas and a couple of intensive courses in the spring. And we do invite you to check out our YouTube channel, where we put out weekly videos on Bible liturgy and culture. And right now we are wrapping up our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing Daniel chapter 11. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Jeff Myers, who's usually with us, is at a presbytery meeting uh, and won't be with us for this episode. We're grateful, as always, to have Brian Motes in the background, uh, making sure everything gets recorded and preserved and edited smoothed out so that it can go out to you. Uh, We appreciate your joining us for this uh, series of studies in the book of Daniel. Uh, We are closing in on the end of the book of Daniel. We've been going at this for several months, taking a couple of episodes for each chapter, and we're uh, in the middle of chapter 11. Uh, Last time we looked at the opening 20 verses or so of chapter 11, we talked a lot about the chapter in general and the challenges of trying to understand it. Uh, But let me remind you that uh, uh, Daniel 11 is part of a larger section of Daniel that begins in chapter 10 with uh, Daniel's encounter with uh, an angel uh, and a kind of uh, recommissioning to receive and record this prophecy. Uh, The prophecy itself is largely contained in Daniel 11, uh, and this has to do with uh, not only a quick overview of the future of the Persian Empire in which Daniel is living, but also especially about the rise of Alexander and the Greek Hellenistic Empire and the aftermath of Alexander, the split up of his kingdom into four, to the four heavens, four corners of heaven, the four winds of heaven, and specifically uh, the two parts of the Hellenistic Empire in Syria and Egypt, the Seleucids in Syria and the Ptolemies in Egypt, and their struggles with each other, uh, which have Palestine, Israel in the middle of that. So Uh, Daniel's interest in this is uh, not only with the power struggles that are going on and the lessons we can learn from looking at those power struggles, but also with the way that these impact the people of God. And that's especially true in the latter part of the chapter. Uh, Beginning in verse 21, we have the rise of a despicable person uh, who is not, uh, doesn't receive the kingship legitimately, but instead seizes seizes the role of king. And he is a, a unique figure in the whole chapter uh, in his uh, hostility to the Jews. Uh, we'll have, take a look at see how that develops. Uh, but uh, especially from verse 29 on, we have his attacks on the people of the covenant and his uh, attempts to seduce uh, the Jews to uh, away from the covenant, away from, away from uh, the living God. Uh, and then the persecution of uh, those who are wise and those who, who resist. And I think one of, one of the things that's, I, I, uh, one of the uh, thoughts I had about the, the importance of this whole section of Daniel, uh, I'm drawing this from, uh, from Joyce Baldwin, 
it does seem like we have some new developments going on in chapter 11. Uh, they're picking up things that have already happened in the book of Daniel, but they're more developed here in chapter 11 with the, this despicable person who is Antiochus IV, a Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, and the events that are being described are the events that are described in the books of the Maccabees. But the specific novelty of this situation is uh, twofold. One is that uh, Antiochus carries out a, a program of religious suppression. It's, it's similar to what happens in Daniel 3, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar tries to get everyone to bow down to worship the image, and he tries to make this universal idolatry and impose this universal idolatry on pain of death. Anyone who doesn't bow down to the image is going to go into a fiery furnace. Uh, but that, that's a short-lived policy, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar reverses that by the end of the chapter. We have something similar with Darius in chapter 6. Uh, Darius uh, puts out a, a decree that uh, no one should worship and pray to anyone except him. Uh, and uh, Daniel, of course, violates that and is thrown to a den of lions. So again, uh, the, on pain of death, they have, to, they have to conform to this religion. What you don't have in either of those cases, even though you have this kind of imposed religious program, what you don't have in either of those cases is a deliberate suppression of Jewish identity and Jewish faith. And that does seem to be what Antiochus is after. And uh, he seems to be trying to undo Judaism as such, uh, remove the symbolic and ritual markers that make the Jews who they are, both by force and by seduction. Those are the two, uh, the two-pronged attack. So that's one side of the, the novelty. The other side of the novelty is that uh, here we have resistance to this king, uh, to this despicable person. The resistance does not result in rescue from death, but instead results in martyrdom. Uh, the three friends of Daniel go into the fiery furnace, and of course, they're preserved in the fiery furnace. Uh, they aren't consumed, much to Nebuchadnezzar's dismay. And that's the reason, one of the reasons why he has this confession at the end of chapter three of the, the power of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The same thing happens, of course, with the lions in the lion's den. They don't eat Daniel. Uh, in both of those cases, there's rescue from death, a rescue from the death penalty that's imposed by this uh, ruler. But here we're going to see that uh, God doesn't intervene to rescue, but instead those who have insight, verse 33 says, uh, they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Beginning of chapter 12, there's again a reference to tribulation and distress, uh, and many uh, will fall before, before this power. So there seems to be a, 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 seems to be a new kind of development on the on the political side of things there's this successful or or at least partially successful imposition of a of religious conformity a partially successful attempt to undo jewish identity and at the same and then there's resistance like the resistance of the three friends and the resistance of daniel but the resistance ends in martyrdom and so we seem to have be moving as there seems to be a stage toward the new testament idea of faithful witness and faithful resistance to tyranny, modeled by Jesus, of course, but uh, picked up by the apostles uh, who stand against um, tyrants and, um, uh, and, and witness faithfully to Jesus at the cost of their lives. So any thoughts about that, uh, that suggestion that there, there's this kind of new development going on with uh, the reign of Antiochus? Personally, I, I think that's really helpful, particularly the link with flattery. Um, and that comes a, a few times here, doesn't it, in this um, 
in this last section where um where brute force has failed no matter how mighty um the king you know flattery is going to succeed and in some senses antiochus needs to resort to flattery he, he doesn't have the outright military um backing and and so forth to um uh, to accomplish uh, a great deal and so there is this altogether sort of more more subtle um plan of attack which which is yeah a, a bit more dark and, and and scary in some ways we see that in the way that he comes to power in the first place through deceit um and then later on in the manner of his um his power it increasingly i think we see in such figures something of the monster that lies behind them they're taking on more of the image of the great dragon um in someone like like antarchus we're seeing what have formerly been primarily horizontal conflicts starting to take a far more vertical aspect that it's a more direct assault against god and his um hubris is leading him not just to want to take over other kings and nations but to usurp the place of god among his people right and we had similar things in chapter 8 didn't we where antiochus was introduced there there was that vertical climbing up towards heaven and uh focus on the sanctuary but also he he was said to be a, a king of kind of bold face or kind of impudence or something and and one who understands riddles so as peter was saying that there's this whole aspect of um yeah more complexity to this particular last king in terms of his character and and method Elster's uh, point about the vertical and horizontal is 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 interesting and yeah it is there's definitely that shift and it's interesting how the two seem to be tied together for Antiochus I'm looking at verses 27 and following by verses 28 I guess particularly he's he's continuing the struggle with the kings of the south so you have this uh, as we talked about in the previous episode you have this ongoing struggle between between Greek Syrians and Greek Egyptians uh, and Antiochus the 4th continues that um and he's uh, uh he uh, fights against egypt succeeds in gaining plunder verse 28 says but his heart is set against the holy covenant he will take action and return to his own land so there's an effort to invade and conquer egypt that's not successful he gains plunder but he's not able to take control of egypt and he returns to his own land and at that point having unsuccessfully invaded egypt he turns against the holy covenant the same thing happens again he returns and comes into the south first 29 says uh and in this case he meets the ships of katim which uh, i think typically is understood as um uh, uh as a uh, antiochus confronting rome we we mentioned rome last time with uh, his his father antiochus the 3rd encountered rome and was pushed back by rome again antiochus the 4th is pushed back right by rome humiliated by rome in fact and then becomes enraged verse 30 uh, at the holy covenant takes action so there's this uh there's this turn from uh the unsuccessful effort to conquer egypt leads him to turn his ire toward the the jews so there's this there's this um uh, uh link between the the failure of his horizontal wars and his turn to the the vertical and that entanglement happens from both directions it's not merely that the actors during this period are people like the Seleucids and the Ptolemies there are also people within Israel themselves that are 
falling on one side or another or using these forces as means to achieve their own um the ends for their own particular factions and other things like that so during this period in Jerusalem we have the tensions between the Tobiads and the Anayads the Hellenizers and then those who are more conservative and the way in which these are vying for dominance over the high priesthood and then the way that um the Anayads um or the um there is this appeal to the um power of the Seleucids to act on behalf of um those who are wanting the high priesthood and so the hellenization of Jerusalem and the corruption of Israel's worship is happening alongside these other things that are happening in the world outside and as we've noted previously Israel was always tempted to lose its nerve to think that the important thing was the empire whose horse they backed and we see this in the final years of Jerusalem for instance the and or the final years of the northern kingdom the question of what should your Assyria policy be or what should your Babylon foreign policy be how do you relate to this great power that's rising do you turn to the Egyptians or do you go to the Assyrians or do you go to the Egyptians or the Babylonians and these sorts of questions ultimately cause Israel to lose sight of its primary responsibility of being faithful to the lord and in the end they throw their lot in with things that will ultimately lead to their demise and we see this happening in a similar way at this time in israel's history yeah yeah and just to just to fill in some of the picture that you're referring to verse 22 talks about antiochus overflowing forces forces will be flooded away before him and shattered uh, his forces like a flood that uh, goes over the land and also the prince of the covenant is being shattered. I take that as a reference to uh, a priestly figure, the chief of the covenant, perhaps Anias, the high priest. And what happens, uh, as we find out in the uh, in the accounts of the Maccabees, is that uh, Antiochus uh, gives the high priesthood to somebody other than Anias, removes Anias from the high priesthood, gives it to, uh, I think it's his brother who's uh, changes his name to the Greek name Jason. Uh, and then another priestly figure comes later and pays uh, uh, Antiochus uh, more money to uh, give him the high priest. And so the, the high priesthood becomes uh, an office that's available to the highest bidder. Uh, and Antiochus is the one who's controlling that office from this point. That's one of the, one of the ways that he's attacking in the Holy Covenant. And that also is part of the seduction. He's using flattery, but he's also using uh, it talks about uh, him distributing plunder, booty, and possessions in verse 24. He's a he's a benefactor. He knows how to use gifts and offices in order to gain loyalty. And he's he's corrupting the high priesthood by uh, gifting the high priesthood to the highest bidder, and there thereby putting in you know he puts a a person into the high priesthood who's going to be loyal to him. So uh, that's one of the corruptions of uh, of Israel's worship and life that's going on here. Right. It's as if Israel kind of start playing Antiochus's game, isn't it? Because as he comes in and starts flattering and acting by deceit, that's answered by all sorts of similar ploys within Israel. And, and they deceitfully try to kind of outsmart one another and, and so forth. And as Anastasis is, rather than standing up and being faithful to God, they, they start playing Antiochus's game. Um, and 
it's very interesting the fact that un unless Antiochus is one of the two kings referred to in um 20 in verse 27 which i don't personally think he is um he's never referred to as a king um in this entire section on him so sort of 14 or, or perhaps 15 verses he arises as a contemptible person in verse 21 and um then he's just sort of he you know and and his opponent is the king of the south and so he he's referred to as this guy to whom majesty isn't given he, he's a usurper who's not acknowledged at all and um i think that's another reason to think that in verse 36 we have moved on to um to the very end and to a new figure when it, it finally does say and the king shall do as, as he wills so the whole portrait of antiochus here is is very interesting i think you uh, left uh, 20 verse 27 dangling if that if uh, the two kings are not antiochus and somebody else who do you think those two kings are um it's a while since i looked at this as i recall antiochus is trying to reconcile a um uh, a split between a couple of ptolemies within egypt and he he's trying to um uh trying to put that back together I think but i could be completely wrong on that yeah well alexandria would... set up ptolemy the sixth younger brother as king and then ptolemy the sixth and antiochus fight against him yeah, that would fit with what, as you pointed out, James, he's, he's not called king at the beginning. In fact, he's, uh, it's explicitly said that he didn't receive the honor of kingship. It's not been conferred on him, and all the way through he's not called king. So it would seem, verse 27, would be out of place in, the, in this section if uh, Antiochus himself is being called king. That's, that's helpful. And I think you're right. As we'll get to verse 36 in a bit, but I think you're right that that kind of emphatic reference to the king means that we're in a different uh, different a different phase of history. So the, the corruption of the priesthood is one thing. And I, I think it, as we've been talking, I think one of the things that come out of it is the deceptions and flatteries of Antiochus have an insidious effect and, and spread out. Uh, once you have somebody in charge who's a flatterer and a, and a deceiver, a satanic figure, as Alistair said, a dragon figure, uh, then that seeps out and others begin to use similar kinds of tactics. And it puts Jews against Jews. Uh, because they're all vying for the kind of uh, the kind of uh, position that Antiochus holds in his hand. So that's that's one way that, that uh, Judaism is corrupted. We also have this reference to the appears to be a reference to his uh, plunder of the sanctuary. Uh, he does come back from one of his wars and uh, take take uh, plunder from the from the temple. Uh, according to the Maccabees, the the great thing that uh, the great evil that he does is to begin to impose. Hellenistic norms and to prohibit, uh, as I said at the beginning of the episode, uh, beginning to prohibit Jewish customs. Uh, but part of that is um, uh, voluntary. There are Jews who want to go along with that, Jews who prefer to be Greeks and who uh, are eager, as, as I think it's First Maccabees talks about some of the priests who rush through their sacrifices so they can run down uh, the Temple Mount and get to the gymnasium at the bottom of the mountain. Uh, and uh, they can engage in their uh, athletic com uh, contests, uh, their their Hellenistic athletic contests. So there's there's a voluntary Hellenization, a voluntary, uh, in a sense, renunciation of their Jewish identity, along with this imposed uh, Hellenization that uh, Antiochus brings. That again I, is a seems to me to be the new thing that's going on with Antiochus is this 
not just that he does he doesn't just do it for a short time, but he does uh, a uh, as a as a deliberate policy to undo uh, Jewish the Jewish people and the Jewish and Jewish identity. And it does seem that the text connects very closely what he the action that he takes against um, the Holy Covenant with the humiliation that he receives at the hand of the Romans can often think that someone doing such great evil must be motivated by uh, an explicit malice or evil directed against um, the people of God and the Lord. But his action is in some ways like the guy who comes back from um, a bad day at work and kicks the dog. He doesn't necessarily see um, the significance of what he's doing. But once he's humiliated by the Romans in Egypt, he's sent back with his tail between his legs and crushing rebellious factions in Jerusalem would be the very natural way of getting over that humiliation of the Egyptian escapade. Verse 31 is kind of a crux. Um, it says, forces from him, this is Antiochus, will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, do away with the regular sacrifice. They will set up the abomination of desolation. And a, a couple of possible interpretations of that. One is the one that the books of the Maccabees gives, which is that the abomination of desolation is uh, an idolatrous image in the temple itself. I think it's an image rather than an altar, but uh, some idolatry and, and, and idolatrous sacrifices, um, sacrifice of a pig on the bronze altar, I think is what, what the Maccabees accuses Antiochus of doing. So uh, one, one idea is that verse 31 is talking about desolation, desecration of the sanctuary done by Antiochus himself. Uh, another interpretation would be that the forces from him are referring not to his own soldiers or his own agents, uh, but rather to the Jews who are referred to, for example, in verse 32, who've been turned to godliness by his smooth words and are acting wickedly toward the covenant. Those are the forces that desecrate the sanctuary. It's corrupted priests who do away with regular sacrifice. And rather than referring to an actual end to sacrifices, referring to a corruption of sacrifice from illegitimate priests. Uh, and then the abomination of desolation would be something not done by Antiochus directly, but rather something that's uh, uh, done by the, uh, by the priests. It would be similar to the, uh, to the abominations of the sons of Eli back in the book of Samuel, where uh, they do abominations in the sanctuary and that, those abominations by the priests bring desolation to the sanctuary. So uh, I'm sure there are other ways of reading that, but uh, what, are your, what are your inclinations about verse 31? Seems to me it's a similar situation to the harlot riding upon the beast. Um, there is a unity, uh, a sort of satanic unity that's established between unfaithful Jews and up to the very top. and um, this pagan force that is increasingly taking on a satanic aspect. Right. I mean, it, it feels like there is something actually set up here, doesn't it? They, they are setting up the abomination, which makes desolate. And so to my mind, at least that fits quite well with a, a yeah, an altar of, of, of some sort being set up. But Alice, you're suggesting that there's a, there's an alliance of Antiochus with apostate Jewish leaders uh, and so the, uh, even if it's referring to uh, the action of Antiochus, something that he does in the temple, it's done with the cooperation of the Jews. 
Um, and I think your your reference to the to the harlot is is uh, apt. Revelation seventeen four and five talk about the harlot's cup that's full of abominations. She wears a kind of high priestly crown on her head that uh, identifies her as Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abomination of the earth. So she is an abominable character. She represents, I believe, she represents Jerusalem, but she is riding on the back of this the sea beast, which is representation of the Roman Empire. So it's that cooperative uh, act. But uh, Jim Jordan argues for this uh, abomination of desolation as being something accomplished by the priests in particular, and argues that abominable actions uh, are done only by priests. Only priests are able to do this kind of thing. A, a, a pagan going into the temple and doing something doesn't count as an abomination that brings desolation. It's only when the, the holy people uh, do these um, uh, do these desecrations that it uh, has this kind of impact. I'm just trying to remember, Have we did we encounter this phrase, abomination of desolation, in, in chapter 8? Um, or was, was it a slight variant on it? I'm, I'm just trying to... Um... The transgression that makes desolate. Ah, okay, right, right. Um, but that was, I think I was, I was pretty sure that that was Antiochus there. Um, and mm. so, uh, but as you say, I mean, it, there is this cooperation. And so in, in the previous um, verse, where is it? Verse um, 30, Antiochus's um, attention is, is those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So th this is not something that he gets much resistance against you know he, he's kind of working with those who who are already apostate james you may be thinking of uh, daniel 9 27 um part of the 70 weeks prophecy in the middle of the week it says he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering on the wing of abominations will come one come one who makes desolate even to a complete destruction so there is a close analogy it's not the same phrase but it's a close analogy to that now, Baldwin suggests that there's a pun here on uh, the designation of uh, a Baal as Baal of the heavens. There's a pun on desolation and heaven. The, the, the words have a have a, a similar sound. And then the word abomination is not the word Baal, but it is uh, the word abominable thing that uh, often is substituted when uh, substituted for the name of a false god. So. Um, She's saying that in, in 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 defense of the idea that it's talking about some kind of image that's being set up inside the temple. Right. I mean, Jeremiah does a fair bit of punning on on those two things: the similarity between heaven and and desolation. So those are uh, verse twenty, verse thirty one rather is uh, identifying the 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 most egregious act of uh, Antiochus or Antiochus in cooperation with the priests. I th I, I think that the uh, the prophecy is implica certainly implicating the priests as equally culpable for what happens in the temple. But uh, then it goes on to talk about the, uh, the resistance. Those who have insight will give understanding to the many. Uh, they will fall by the sword. They will be granted a little help, which seems to be a reference to the resistance that comes from the Maccabees, I suppose, because there, uh, there, are, there are martyrs uh, who refuse to eat pork. They're, they're martyrs who circumcise their children and are killed for circumcising their children. Uh, the books of the Maccabees detail this. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the little help seems to be the resistance of the Maccabees who start an armed resistance to 
the uh, uh, to Antiochus and to his forced Hellenization program. What's what's curious about that though is the kind of offhand and kind of somewhat uh, demeaning way that that's spoken of. In one sense, that's if that's referring to the Maccabees, that is an argument for the authenticity of this text as a prophecy, because if somebody's writing at the time of the Maccabean revolt or after the Maccabean revolt, to dismiss it as a little help seems uh, that would be very strange. But it does seem like it's a it's a uh, a, a, a surprisingly modest description of what the Maccabees accomplished. Do you take the little help as being a reference to the Maccabees or is there something else that you think is in view there? I would take it as a reference to the Maccabees, yes. I mean, it's actually quite a remarkable idea, isn't it, that this book is driven but largely by an author, um, you know, around in the 160s or 170s BC, in that we've got, I mean, you know, we've got about four chapters worth of visions and the guy can only dedicate what two or three verses to like the major climactic events of his own day i mean the whole thing just becomes completely fantastic to my mind and it's it's interesting to see how uh, verse 35 describes the effect of uh, resistance and the martyrdom that follows some of those who have insight will fall and that has the effect of and even the intention of it seems purging and refining and making them pure so there's a uh, it's it's part of the purification of Israel that martyrs die. You think the purification might be more straightforward if the ones who were being eliminated were the ones who'd been seduced and forsaken the covenant. Uh, but that's the that's the kind of uh, um, uh, interesting twist that's going on here in this section of Daniel, where uh, the death of the faithful ones is actually the purification of Israel. The death of the faithful ones is actually the basis for the victory of Israel over her enemies. Right. I mean, it generally seems, doesn't it, that when Israel does um, gain the ascendancy in these sorts of situations, that she always has to deal with this kind of mixed um, crowd within her. And so if you think about the exodus, there is the fact that she leaves with a mixed multitude and that has various um issues concerned with idolatry that arise as the pentateuch unfolds you know here many shall join themselves to them with flattery and so that that, that seems that they get this impure um uh influence we could think of the book of esther where when the jews gain the ascendancy many it's an slightly unusual verb but some people translate it as many will pretend to be jews um but they seem to gain this slightly ambiguous these these slightly ambiguous helpers there in esther and and that's sort of the irony of this whole this whole situation and, and the cyclic nature of what's going on here that when israel have things uh easy or gain the ascendancy they kind of start to stumble and and become corrupt and flabby and all, all the rest of it and then when they're sort of put to the sword, um, if that, that starts to then refine them. As we've said several times, uh, the, the last part of the chapter is a, is a highly contested section. Um, the, uh, several different options for interpreting who this king is that arises in verse 36. Um, some see this as a continuation of the account of Antiochus. I, my sense is that there's a consensus among the three of us that that's not the case. And Antiochus has been 
deliberately not called a king, and then suddenly we have a figure in verse 36 called a king, that means we're going shifting to a different to a different figure. Uh, it also uh, other details that don't quite fit with Antiochus. Uh, we can look at as we go through. So one option is to see him as an Antiochus. Another option is to see him as um, uh, kind of an end times figure. We're jumping ahead to the to the uh, an Antichrist. Uh, James, you've defended that idea in other parts of Daniel that there's this time gap. Another uh, option, uh, uh, Jim Jordan defends this, but he cites uh, other other writers uh, from uh, the 20th century and going back into the early part of the 19th century who argue that this uh, figure is actually Herod the Great and what's being described as the career or the the dynasty of the Herods in relation to uh, Rome and Egypt uh, and, and in relation to Palestine. So uh, in that case too, there would be a, a gap of time between verses 35 and 36, but not so great a gap of time uh, as, uh, as if this were a, uh, an end times figure. So I think, Alistair, you mentioned you, you thought that this is the Herods or Herod the Great. Uh, what's, your, what's your basis for thinking that? I think it makes more sense of the details. Um, uh, things like the King of the North and the King of the South, the um, things that happened with Egypt and other things seem to make more sense to me if we're dealing with the King of the South as Mark Antony and the King of the North as Octavian. So Herod initially fights with the King of the South the king of the north comes against him with a superior force and Rome, the king of the north, ends up taking over Egypt, Libya and Ethiopia. But in verse 41, I think it's the abortive expedition against Edom, Moab and Ammon. And Herod is a man of, again, another man of fortresses. He's a, a wily political operator but yet unfaithful to the covenant, engaging in all these paganizing practices, in addition to not paying attention to the gods of his father, the god of his fathers. And perhaps, um, yes, I, I just think it makes a lot more sense of those specific details. And the fact that we'd have an emphasis upon Herod at this point seems natural, given the way that the Herods have this prominence, even within the typology of the text of the New Testament, Herod can be represented as a Pharaoh-type character. And it would seem the various um, Herods in succession, it's not just one of them, they have this sort of symbolic weight to them that you'd expect, if they did have that weight, that they would be mentioned in this sort of way within the context of Daniel's prophecy. And so it makes sense to me that this is what we're reading here. James, I'm assuming that uh, you have a different take on this section. Yeah, I, I guess I guess I go for my um, toss it into the far flung future. <laughs> um, I mean, part of this, I guess, would depend on how we're going to take um, chapter twelve, and if you think that that refers to the final bodily resurrection, bodily resurrection from the dead, then I guess you'll be more inclined to to think that this is part of that time scale yeah so are, you're taking this as a as like a future antichrist that is uh, at the end of time at the end of the times is that is that how you're end of all time yeah i i suppose i am i mean um a lot of this gets um dependent on previous visions doesn't it i mean um if if as i do you see the the kind of defeat of the fourth 
beast as the time when the saints get the victory and are no longer martyred and persecuted and, and so on, then uh, I guess you, in your set of options, you, you will have the fact that this is a, a, a still future thing. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, something we might agree on is, do, do you see that this is parallel with the rise of Michael? Um, or, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going now slightly into chapter 12, but we've got like, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince. So do you have this final king and Michael kind of arising and being on the scene at the same time? Yeah, that's that's the way I would read it. I, we can, uh, I'd like Alistair to chime in on this, but that's the way I would understand it, that this is talking about the uh, turmoil and then uh, Michael the prince stands uh, over the people. He stands up at that time. So you have a, you move into the gospel period. Yes, and I think the great antagonists throughout the gospel are often the Herods. Um, you see that from the very beginning with the massacre of the innocents. You have it throughout the gospel, the killing of um, of John the Baptist. You have the trial of Jesus. You have other forms of conflict between the Herods and Jesus. But then also later on, you have things like Acts 12 and Herod's attempt to kill early church leaders like James, who he kills, and then Peter, who he almost kills, and then the Lord's judgment upon him. Those Herod figures really are important. And I think that conflict between Michael and the rise of the, and in the context of the rise of the Herods makes a lot of sense to me. I think otherwise we're left with a very perplexing jump that does not make sense within the context of the text. Even the jump through the period of the Hasmonean um, dynasty and the movement to the rise of the Herods is a bit of a jump. But mm. if we're jumping forward millennia in time, it just seems fairly inexplicable to me. Yeah, Maybe, maybe we could uh, uh, detail some of the things that uh, scholars have pointed out that make this Kind of, kind of work uh, uh, negatively. Uh, we've already agreed that this isn't Antiochus, but some of the details that uh, scholars have pointed to, uh, uh, and James already pointed this out, uh, either this episode or the previous episode. Uh, the verse 35 kind of leaves Antiochus as a spent force. Uh, verse 36 calls this figure the king, and Antiochus has never been called the king. Uh, and then there's this, the kind of hubris that this king shows. He magnifies himself above all the, all gods. Um, the conflicts that, that he's engaged in don't seem to have any reference uh, um, reference in the career of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and then the fact that he's uh, in the beautiful land, sets up his pavilion uh, in the beautiful land between the sea and the holy mountain, verse 45 says, and comes to his end and no one helps him. That's often been pointed to as an error. If you're if you're taking this as a, as a prophecy of Antiochus, then this is pointed to as a historical error because Antiochus didn't die in the Holy Land. Uh, if you take it as a reference to Herod, that that uh, verse forty five fits pretty well with Herod's with Herod's career. He had a couple of palaces, royal pavilions in in the Holy Land. Uh, he did come to his end in the Holy Land suffering some uh, some kind of disease and was uh, that was uh, incurable and the battles that are being talked about again don't fit with Antiochus but they do fit as Al Alistair already pointed out they do fit with the contest 
between the North and the South during the times of, the, of Herod, no longer, no longer conflicts between Seleucids and Ptolemies, but now Rome has come in and Rome has taken over uh, the uh, Syrian area, the Northern area, now identified as the King of the North fighting against uh, Egypt and also the Roman allies of Egypt. Uh, so yeah, the, the battle that's, um, the battle that's being talked about is identified as the, the contest between Octavius Caesar and Mark Antony, who's allied with Cleopatra of Egypt. So I, I started out kind of eliminating Antiochus and that's what I really wanted to do. But uh, the, the religious attitude that's described here doesn't fit Antiochus. The wars don't describe Antiochus. The death doesn't describe Antiochus. So uh, these various things don't really fit. On the other hand, it seems like to, to identify these as some great future king, uh, I think Alistair is right that there's a, a massive gap then that is hard to explain, but also the details of him dying in, this, in the beautiful land uh, between the sea and the holy mountain, uh, the battles that are going on there, uh, that also, um, uh, those, obviously we, we don't, if it's referring to a future figure, we haven't gotten there yet, but it's very specific that these battles are taking place in that area. Uh, and they do seem to match the Herods better than, uh, certainly better than Antiochus. The news from the East, should we take that if it's the Herods as a reference to the, the wise man? That's, I presume that's the a- news, my assumption would be the news from the North is um, Antipater telling him that his two sons have spoken against him to Caesar. Yeah, I was taking the the rumors from the east as being uh, a reference to the Magi, and um, and I think that also that justifies the description at the beginning of this section, verse thirty six, uh, when he exalts himself above every god. Um, he has uh, news that the Messiah has been born, and he tries to suppress the coming of the Messiah. So the, those two things uh, uh, fit neatly together, and they fit neatly with Herod. Um, I was just going to say the idea of um, him coming to his end with none to help him. Um, I was thinking actually that 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 does fit relatively well with Herod in in terms of the um, when they stumble in verse thirty four, um, they receive a little help. This this is sort of the the resistance, isn't it? So when the resistance is is born, various Jews who originally had been um, you know, on Antiochus's side, come and, and start to join the resistance in, instead. And um, really, that, that was the opposite with um, Herod. As, as soon as things sort of got difficult, he, he was deserted, wasn't he, like by everyone and, and just sort of left. So that, that, that seems to go quite, quite well to my mind as well. Um, I was interested in the uh, indignation here. Like, um, so in verse 36, um, I think this is something that works quite well with the idea of a discontinuity that, that we've both been um, talking about, that he shall prosper until the indignation is is accomplished. And um, in a sense, that, that sort of doesn't flow on very naturally from verse 35, because uh, in verse 35, it, it seems that the resistance has just um, begun and, and things are looking up. And I'm just wondering, yeah, what, what, what is this? Indignation is um, is is God sort of still grieved with with what's going on in in Israel at this time? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
As I recall, in Chapter 8, the outpouring of indignation was kind of a, a major um, a major part of that vision. And um, I, I don't know if a, a similar idea is in mind here. I'll be looking back to things like the um, prophecy of the 70 weeks and other things like that that maybe provide some help here. The decreed end poured out on the desolator and things like that. Yeah, that was right. my that was my thought too. But um, I, uh, the connection is still is eluding me. Um, yeah, I mean, well, one of the interesting things is that kind of I think probably we yeah we we do agree that this is isn't just continuing Antiochus, but I mean, the fact that so many people think it is is certainly testimony to the way in which it's it's framed. It is framed in some way as a continuation of Antiochus's career. You know, he, he is a kind of um, uh, a foreshadow of this final figure, whoever whoever he is. And um, I, I think that's kind of um, uh, something then that, that's meant to enhance our understanding um, of, of the vision, that, that there is this continuity, that there is often in, in Israel this uh, attitude that almost encourages these rebellious figures to to rise up and to put themselves in 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 place of god let me give a stab at trying to uh trying to give some account of that phrase in verse 36 uh if uh think of the i think i think the link is with the 70 weeks prophecy that's the strongest link within daniel uh and that 70 weeks prophecy is in successor to the 70 years that have been referred to at the beginning of daniel 9 the 70 years of uh, the dominance of of uh, Babylon so it's a it's a kind of continuing exile motif uh, and so the continuation of the indignation is the continuation of Israel being under these powers the times of the Gentiles continue past the 70 years uh, and uh, so the uh, the Herod uh, the Herod or the, the king here I'm going to call him Herod uh, is um, prospers until the indignation is finished, until the completion of that 70-week period. Uh, so uh, that could be the uh, I'm, that could be the referent, and then the Herods are continuing until the that period of 70 weeks culminates with either the the Christ, uh, the coming of Christ, or the uh, the end of Jerusalem, or uh, that, when that when that second longer period of indignation or exile comes to an end. And those connections between characters, I think, can be helpful. We see it, I think, on a number of occasions in Scripture done in different ways that characters can easily get confused with each other because they're presented in, uh, in a sort of silhouette. You see them standing for something more than just themselves. And so you can see it just with textual clues. For instance, the movement from the great antagonist against David originally is Goliath. And then from that point onwards, you have him facing the spear-bearing giant of Israel, who is a Goliathized Saul. You have similar things, I think, in the Gospels and Acts, where you don't have sharp distinctions between the Herods. The Herods tend to be seen as an almost unified entity. And so when we have figures like um, Herod here, and he's 
presented in ways that are very reminiscent of Antarchus, maybe that is an intentional blurring of the difference. So you begin to see something truer about Herod than if you just saw him as this detached, disconnected figure. He's, in some sense, a continuation of some of the things that Antarchus represented. Uh, James has mentioned a couple of times that this um, uh, this uh, episode kind of spills over into the beginning of chapter 12, which we'll pick up in the next episode. But I think it's it's worth noting that uh, if, if we're taking the end of chapter 11 with the beginning of chapter 12 and the king that's being described in 11 is uh, juxtaposed in time and situation with Michael, the rising of Michael, then that means also that the time of distress in verse 12, verse 1, is also uh, in that same period. It's, it's a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until, this, until that time. So it's the great, greatest tribulation that Israel has ever gone through. It, it continues that theme that we saw with Antiochus. This is another tie to the, uh, to the, to the rule of Antiochus where he's not just, well, he's trying to suppress and he's, and he's killing, and he's killing uh, Jewish martyrs and they're not being rescued, but they're being put to death. And we're going to have something similar now in the time of the king and of his successors, perhaps. So I think that's, again, uh, as we get to the end of Daniel, we're moving into that uh, later phase of what, what God calls his people to do and what God promises to his people. From the early chapters of Daniel, to, to repeat what I said, uh, we might expect that God would always intervene and rescue at the brink of the grave. You know, if there's a fire, then he's going to make sure it doesn't burn us. And if there are lions, he's going to make sure they don't devour us. But now it seems the fire is going to consume us and the lions are going to devour us. And the saints are going to be mowed down and killed. Uh, that's, a, that's a shift in the way God deals with, uh, in, in, what, uh, uh, in how God deals with his people and also in what uh, the people of God are called to. And it seems to continue throughout the second half of Daniel 11 and into chapter 12, leading up to the New Testament call to follow Jesus, take up our cross, witness faithfully in the face of pressure and death. And we're moving into this kind of uh, theology of martyrdom that's so prominent in the New Testament. We're all, it's already beginning to be developed in the, in the, uh, after Daniel. You have, you have uh, some of the same themes that are picked up in the books of the Maccabees, the uh, accounts of martyrdom, the uh, promise of a kind of triumphant martyrdom. Um, and uh, Daniel's already setting the trajectory for that and uh, as it develops into the New Testament. Right. I, I mean, there, there seems to be something quite encouraging amidst all the horrors of, of this, doesn't there? In that these beasts always seem to go one step too far and overstep the mark and therefore usher in the end and, and their own destruction. And so in kind of Antiochus, um, it, it seems that actually he had a number of Jews on his side who were sympathetic to his um, cause, who were quite sort of progressively minded and friendly to Hellenism. Um, you know, um, Alistair mentioned the gymnasium that they enjoyed and, and, and so forth. And so he could have actually got a lot of cooperation, but sort of went one step too far and, and wanted to um, offer pagan sacrifices on on the altar and and that it seemed was the sort of the straw that broke the camel's camel's back and and suddenly kind of 
almost revived Jewish nationalism among the embers of, of what was a dying nation at, at that time. And it feels that this final king, um, that the same is going to be true of him as, as he begins to um, lift himself up and um, blaspheme God and, and um, what does it say? He shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. It feels like that's the trigger for the trouble and therefore the trigger for Michael to arise. And that's the way of these beasts, isn't it? They, they always kind of push things one to one step too far um, and thus usher in their own destruction. And I think that can be an encouraging thing in, in the present uh, present day and age as, as we see sort of secular powers um, just always want to go one step uh, too far. One of the benefits of a passage like this that has these rather abstract representations of figures is that it teaches us the power of a sort of typology as encouragement and exhortation to the church in times of difficulty. It reminds the church that you've been through something similar to this before. This is not unprecedented. We've had figures like this before. This figure that you may focus upon his particularities, those things that make him seemingly unique, is actually rather like these figures that we've had in the past. And those figures were overthrown, and the people of God faithfully stood against them. You can stand against these ones too, that are still to come. And that, I can imagine, as people were going through these periods of history and meditating upon this prophecy, seeing some of the ways in which it was being fulfilled, puzzling over some other details, it would have been a great source of, of encouragement. The very rep repetitious aspect of it, a reminder that these forces cannot muster up any greater unprecedented power that they have not shown to this point. They are merely working through the same patterns that are tired patterns that the Lord has overthrown before and will overthrow again. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>